Hello and welcome to the Road Pod MedTech Monday. Before we get into MedTech Monday with David Josephs and a very informative masterclass in IP protection, which every young startup needs. But first, let me talk about some programming changes. We're going to move MedTech Monday to every other Monday. And then I will be filling in the other two Mondays with a regular Road Pod episode. This will go on uh, through August, and we'll see how it goes. It's been um, a challenge uh, to pump out two episodes a week, no doubt about it. And uh, Danielle, uh, my co-host on MedTech Monday, uh, is uh, got a lot on her plate, and we just wanted to make sure that we can provide you with quality content. So that's where we are. Every other Monday, MedTech Monday, and on the other Mondays, I'll be doing a general interest episode. Thanks very much. And without further ado, a great masterclass with David Josephs, intellectual property attorney in Providence and a member of Nemec's smart team. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another MedTech Monday. I'm Danielle Sturm, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, Tom Chiginski. Tom, how are you? Very well, and you? Doing well. So if you've been keeping up with our latest episodes, you would know that many of our recent guests are Nemec Smart Team members, and today is no different. So I'm very excited to introduce to you Nemec's intellectual property subject matter expert and lawyer, Dave Josephs. Dave has been working with us since Nemec started um, educating startups back in early 2018. Um, he's been leading classes, workshop, and meets one-on-one with many of our fellow startups to advise them on all things um, centered around IP. Um, Dave, we've been working together for some time now, and I'm interested in learning more about your background as a lawyer and an electrical engineer and how that correlates in your work today, as well as um, if you could tell our listeners a bit about yourself and Barlow, Josephs, and Holmes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my, uh, my background um, is electrical engineering. Uh, that was my major in, in college. Uh, as, uh, so uh, all patent attorneys are going to have a uh, science background as that's, that's a requirement in order to, um, uh, to represent people before the patent office. Um, it's a little different than uh, filing suit or uh, civil litigation where you're going to bring maybe an infringement action. You don't have to be, you don't have to have a science background, but in order to uh, work uh, represent um, inventors and companies uh, before the patent office, you need um, the, uh, it's called a patent agent um, uh, bar uh, uh, exam uh acceptance. And once you're a member of the, the patent bar, it's different than a state bar, then you can represent people before the patent office and you need a science background. So my uh, background happens to be electrical engineering. And um, I uh, went to Union College in upstate New York. And then uh, shortly after that, I went to uh, John Marshall Law School in Chicago. And it's similar to Franklin Pierce, which I guess is now part of uh, University of New Hampshire, where you have these graduate programs uh, in IP. So we were able to, it was a unique school in that same similar to Franklin Pierce, where you can get exposed to a lot of um, higher level intellectual property coursework um, at the JD level without going to um, get a master's. So um, after uh, law school, I, I worked for a firm in Chicago and then came back to the East Coast where I'm from and uh, started working at Barlow. It was Barlow and Barlow for decades, literally decades. The firm goes back to the mid 1800s, literally. And then um, uh, the person who I bought the firm from way back when was uh, uh, in his seventies and he 
didn't know what, what he wanted to do. So we, I took over the firm and then thankfully we're keeping it going and grew the firm and we're still, uh, we're still cranking along doing the same stuff. So, uh, so yeah, and we're, we, we specialize in patent prosecution, patent and trademark prosecution work, which is, as, as I alluded to earlier, it's different to different than litigation. So uh, we focus on helping people build up their patent and trademark portfolios and probably 65% of my practice is uh, the patent stuff. So, um, and another attorney, everyone's a member of the patent bar and there's another uh, younger attorney that's, um, that was also an exam. Oh, by the way, I was a patent exam. Yeah. The, he was also a patent examiner as well. So, um, uh, so uh, yeah, I don't, I didn't mention that, but, um, but yeah, so um, that's what we focus on. And so we see a lot of these issues that you guys are facing every day. And uh, there's some, particular issues that come up with startups and uh, uh, people who are, um, are looking for, uh, for grant money and so forth. And there's some, some pitfalls and some things to think about, um, which we can get into in detail today. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have one question, Dave, before we get sure. started. You mentioned 65% of your work is patent and 35% is probably trademark. Yeah. Is it, is it important for companies because, you know, branding is so important these days? Is it important for companies to think about trademarking their names and their taglines? It's actually, uh, it can be very important, especially if, um, I think it becomes more important with the, the clients that are, are clients that are not um, tech focused. So if you're a food mm-hmm. company, you may, you sell granola bars, the chances of get having uh patents as an asset to you for you or an advantage to maybe get a leg up on competitors is not going to be there because it's mm-hmm. difficult to get, there's probably no patentable subject matter there. So you have to rely on your right. branding. So we have one company, one client that sells water. They literally sell water. And so <laughs> there's, no, there's no patent opportunities there. So it's all about the branding, all about the marketing. So for companies like that, the trademarks um, and the branding is critical to uh, differentiate themselves um, from others in the marketplace. And then we have clients on the flip of this flip of it. Some, many of our clients are not retail level. It's not like shark tank, you know, that you don't have, Oh, here's a product and you put it on the table and look what it does. Isn't, what are you going to call it? How much is it going to be? A lot of it's not like that. We, we represent clients that have dozens of engineers that are working and they, they're, um, they're working to improve maybe a little aspect of their, of their technology. So it's, it's, it might get introduced and rolled into uh, various products, uh, but it's not in, in that case, there's no branding. They don't care about the branding. And if there is branding right. on the, if there is some kind of differentiation of the product, it's, it's going to be a, just a, a stock number or a, a product number. And it's not very sexy with all sorts of fancy branding. And you get into people with websites and things like that, which is again, Going back to the other side, where the branding is critical, so I guess yeah. it depends. Yeah. I, well, I bring I, I bring that to mind just because of digital health right now, right? There's a whole movement towards digital health and wellness, and there's yeah. no probably no IP there in terms of patentable process in the background. Maybe there's an algorithm or two, but um, okay, yep. great. I didn't mean to interrupt. But you're, 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 it's going, exactly, but I, you're exactly right. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. So you mentioned too that you work with startup. And obviously, you work in the med tech space with us. But um, what other types of companies? I know you probably work with in biotech, but what other types of industries do you work in? Um, and what is it like working with startups versus like established companies in, yep. in this world? 
Yeah, being a, in, in a small firm in uh, in a small state, small state, um, we see technology all over the place, and it ranges from some of these medical focused, uh, med tech kind of focused stuff uh, to um, uh, airplane turbine engines um, to paintball guns to um, bird feeders to we have one client that's very active in bioreactors which is kind of interesting stuff about moving these this these very active bio uh, material from one room to another and there's all sorts of handling issues and and with it's almost like plumbing in a way where they're bringing it from one area to another and there's a lot of concerns about uh, cleanliness um, and we have some uh, some clients that are involved in um, in electronics, um, some are in in the um, in the in the government. Um, uh, what's the right way to say it? Um, in the the weapons area, so in computerized targeting and things like that. It's it's kind of it really we really handle a lot of different stuff, and so uh, uh, some of them are in the uh, our startups, um, and uh, the ones that are that are just coming around to thinking about IP, usually, unfortunately, they think about IP after they've won a business plan competition or after they get a grant. <laughs> and, it's, and it's sometimes too late because we have all these concerns about public disclosure. Unlike trademarks, um, the trademarks don't have a concern about public disclosure because you'll accumulate common law rights by using a mark or a brand. Um, does that little TM instead of a circled R matter if you're trying to start brand yourself? That's, that's just right. adding that as a superscript. Yeah, trademark rights arise out of use, so you can accumulate uh, com what's called common law trademark rights uh, by use, and that is the TM. That's commonly designated by TM. You don't have to put TM on there, but I always tell clients, you might as well because uh, you might as well tell the world that you're claiming some trademark rights. So the TM right. is a good indicator. And then if you, uh, you'll, you'll get these common law rights, kind of like common law marriage. I mean, the analogy, it's a weak, well, it's not that weak of an analogy, but you know, common law marriage, for example, you'll you cohabitate for a certain number of years, you call each other um, you, husband and wife or uh, wife and wife or whatever, and you have a, a will um, and you could be treated as married, even though there's no certificate, there's no, there's no blood test or anything like that. So, that is on that. Those trademark rights are going to accumulate on a state law level, a common law lesser level. And if you want nationwide federal protection, that's when you seek federal rights by filing an application with the federal government down in DC. And if you get the federal registration, and a lot of people have seen these registration certificates, once you get the certificate of federal registration, now you can use R to circle and you can replace the TM. And that that's higher level, more powerful rights. And it's very handy now because. Um, Amazon, if I know this might be a little off topic with um, with the uh, the medtech patent stuff, um, but Amazon brand registry, a lot of people sell using that platform, and they have a um, a system, an internal watchdog system called Brand Registry. It's not Brand Registry 2.0, and in order to register your mark in there, you have to have a federal registration. So it's become a, a nice thing to have that federal registration because now you can say I have a, this mark. That's fairly registered. You enter it into their system, and it makes it easier for to take for you to take down storefronts or take down listings. And they, the common law rights you can see are kind of wishy-washy 
So they don't like to um, take down listings and take down storefronts because of a common law mark. But at least now they have the federal government has put their stamp of approval on it. It's gone through that, that, um, that, that process of federal registration that they can say, okay, yeah, we, we'll take that and we'll put it in our system for our own internal um, uh, checking of, of different um, uses of marks. Um, cool. But the, the patents, we have to really, you have to be careful of um, public use because uh, most countries have a what, what's called an absolute novelty requirement, and that's the zero-day grace period. So if you, you must, in other words, you have to have a patent application on file with a government that is, that is, uh, that is filed with uh, impending before any kind of public disclosure. The United States has a one-year grace period, as does uh, you know, a couple of other countries also have that, but very few. So a good advice that I, good advice that I often give is file a patent application as early as possible. So the quagmire or the, the problem is if you're a startup and you have no money, how are you going to file a patent application? And there are some ways using the provisional patent application process, which is a much less expensive process. The government fees are much less. You don't need all these formalities of, of a formal application because it's not going to get examined. You don't need patent claims. You don't need fancy patent line drawings. Um, so you can at least get the content. So provisionals are all about um, substance over form. And then a full application is substance and form because you're going to have an examiner look at it. So I don't know if, I think we were going to discuss that kind of stuff um, later, but those are the things to think about for a startup that is a, is a concern and it's not too expensive. So you know, that's, that's definitely um, a thing that you need to worry about, think about as a startup uh, is the public disclosure rules because it mm -hmm. will, it will bar you. It's a bar to, um, so you, you can file a patent application, you can get it to go through the whole patent process. But in the meantime, if there, there could be a, uh, a ticking time bomb in there where maybe you had, you publicly disclosed everything at a, a business plan competition two years prior to your filing and all this work is going to be for naught because um, someday in litigation, you're going to have this patent, you're going to assert it against somebody, and they're going to say, well, did you disclose it in context of litigation? Oh, yeah, we, were at, we won this competition, and when was that? And, oh, it was two years before you filed, and then it's over. You know, the patent's mm -hmm. going to get knocked out. So those are the kind of things that um, are very, very important when there's a balance of timing of – of this of invention and and acquisition and uh, availability of money mm -hmm. that we how see much, a lot in these new startups. How much do the provisional patents cost to file? The government fee is one hundred and forty dollars for um, what we what they call what the government calls a small entity. So that's five hundred employees or less. And there's some other exceptions, um, universities, um, and some other examples. Um, and it would be twice the undiscounted, the non-discounted fee is 280. Uh, and then you have patent attorney fees and it can range from you know, a couple hundred or depending on how much or a couple thousand, but you can also do them on your own. And so the key is content is getting it disclosed. Um, so I've seen provisionals that clients have done on their own and they're fine. I've seen them done when they're just not done correctly. They, they don't have, they, they don't, 
the patent office has a problem with, they don't pay enough fees and they don't, now the thing goes abandoned. There's all sorts of, and you need that date because it, it predates a trade show appearance. You know, so th- those are things that you just want to have your antenna up on to yeah. make sure that you're okay. And you, and, and you mentioned, you know, academia. I mean, there's a lot of disclosure in the, in the academic environment. And people may sort of come out of there and have an idea and, and, and sort of disclose it at class or to a professor or something. How do they protect that going, you know, how do they think through that process? Uh, I think the answer is most of the time they don't. And so we, we're trying to fix something oftentimes after the fact, or we're hoping that they're coming to us within a year so we can at least have rights left for the U.S. So fortunately, we're in a country that has a grace period, a one-year grace period. Um, if you're in Germany, for example, the, you know, you can't, you have to, you, you will not have any patent rights left. And so um, you just have to have foresight. And um, so it's the, the, the classroom disclosure. Oh yeah. I talked to my, everyone in my class about it. Cause we were doing a project and a couple times a quarter, we, we talk about what we're doing. Well, now you start this clock. So hopefully they realize that, so it's a kind of educational issue about knowing that there's an issue about that disclosure that a lot of people don't know about. And I've had people, I've had clients come, they're brand new clients and they'll say, I ask them, well, it's a threshold question. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a question that I ask almost right at, pretty much right out of the gate. Um, and sometimes, oh yeah, we've been selling this for 20 years and we want, we figured we, we got to get a patent on this now. It's enough enough. We got to get a patent. Well, in 19 years, too late. So, <laughs> unfortunately, that that happens once in a while. So, um, and then I also see people. You ask them, well, when did you first disclose this publicly? And I don't tell them about the one year because if I do, they always they come up with a date that's 11 months ago. Yep. Not always, but oftentimes. So I, I ask them first before I tell them about the one year. Sure. So. Um, <laughs> So in any event, those, yeah. those are concerns, but there's no, and the only way would be for someone to teach someone or have a two second conversation about the public disclosure issues. Um, that's the way you prevent it, prevent someone from losing their invention mm-hmm. by public, due to public disclosure. Is there a way you can talk about it? Like without actually talk, like you can't just talk about it at all, or can you not talk about the details of the invention or can you talk about like, if you're already thinking about a business around it, can you talk about that? Or you just said, do not disclose it at all. I, I think, so your question is, is an excellent one. And that's something that will come up and we don't do a lot of litigation. Uh, we're we're mm-hmm. typically support for the trial lawyers that, that do this kind of, that go to court who are typically not patent attorneys. They're just, they're litigators. And the subject matter happens to be patents. Um, the, do you want to be in a deposition someday talking about what you disclosed and what was enough to make it enabling and all this stuff? You'd rather just say, I didn't talk about it until this date, period. And it takes a lot of these things out of the equation. But if you just, if you talk about something generally, then really there's the question of, did you have possession of all of the details that end up in the pad? So, you get the question of, um, oh, I went to this, I went to a trade show and I just showed a picture of the thing at my booth, but I didn't tell them how it worked. 
that's not that is a disclosure because you're exploit. So the general rule is is are you exploiting the invention? Are you are you are you talking about it? Are you trying to market it? Are you trying to advance? Are you trying to advance it? And if you are, then uh, so that 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 could be done by an offer for sale, uh, a an actual sale, um, a putting it into a slide deck and presenting it at a business plan competition. So the um, the concern is uh, if it's broadly disclosed, we have to also see well what else did they have in their possession as far as subject matter at that time, and. A lot of times, especially with these business plan winners or startups, they blow their date on the first iteration of it, the very first one. And then they realize, well, there's some better ways to do it. So the, you have a new clock on new subject matter. So if, there's, uh, if there are a few different ways to do something and what you presented to the class was uh, option A, and then you realize after you really dig into it and you got some money from your your VC folks and you won your business plan competition or whatever, and you're starting to work on it. And now um, you've come up with some you improvements. Those improvements aren't saddled with that first date. Mm-hmm. They, get, they have a new date. So a lot of times they lose the broad over overreach, overarching kind of um, product concept because of the public disclosure. But when they get into, um, when they get into the details, the details are still okay. And even, okay, that they might not have even disclosed it at all. So they would be able to preserve all the rights around the world. So that's, that's a common, but mm-hmm. you know, by the same token, there's also uh, another comment that a lot of times these, the general concept that they disclosed is not new, is not mm-hmm. patentable anyways. So it's those specifics of how they're going to do it, how they're going to implement it. That's where you get into the good stuff, especially, you know, it's 2020 we have 10 and a half million patents, that, you know, that's a lot of mm-hmm. prior art and a lot of stuff that people mm-hmm. invented. So the chance that what you're going to get a patent on now is going to be pretty specific, I think. So, mm-hmm. uh, Wow. So just from our conversation today, and I mean, all that I've learned from you and um, some other lawyers just around IP, um, is that it's really important in the medical and the med tech space, especially for startups. And I think we thought educating startups on what we just talked about of how not to disclose your um, invention and how to talk about your invention before filing provisional patent. We thought it was so important that we actually moved the class. So our med tech leadership program is a 24 class seven month program that takes learners through everything you need to know if you have an idea in med tech or you want to work for a startup in med tech um, to take that invention to um, the market and then be able to fundraise and have a successful company. Um, So we moved that class. I think originally the IP class was about midway through and we were just working last week on kind of rearranging the the curriculum and we moved it to be the third class now. So we have a class called MedTech 101, a workshop called Commercial Viability, and then it goes right into IP because we thought it was so important for a lot because a lot of these people in the classes have ideas um, and have technologies that are in very early stages to be able to give them that information super early um, to tell them, don't talk about, (laughs) don't talk about this till you go see an IP lawyer. What, what does that? So 
because it happened so early, can you just give us an outline of like that timeline of like the you you talked about your invention, you have a year to file what a provisional patent and what that timeline is to the next patent to usually getting getting um, IP for it. Yeah, the um, the most common, the best scenario or the best process is file a provisional patent application. Uh, Provisionals are not mandatory. I don't know. Is is your um, audience that might be, they're going to be familiar with provisionals? I believe so. Okay. So, yeah. So the most common um, path uh, is to file a provisional first, especially in a startup scenario, because it is really the, the cost to entry is, is much lower. And you can investigate over the course of a year, uh, see if you're going to be able to sell it, see if you can even make it, uh, do prior art searches, and then you can get into the bigger dollars and the bigger project of the full non-provisional. So in the United States, you almost have two years to file the non-provisional because you can have one year uh, grace period, file your provisional. And for U.S. purposes, that will stop the clock. But for other countries like Canada that has a, a one-year grace period, the provisional does not stop the clock. You cannot piggyback on a U.S. provisional to file a Canadian. You still have to file within a year of the first, your first public disclosure. Um, so the, um, as far as the timing, um, we usually get a provisional on file before any kind of public disclosure. If that's not possible, then uh, we'll file uh, within a year of the, uh, uh, within a year of the public disclosure using the grace period. And then rarely do we start writing a patent up a full non-provisional right away and, and, uh, and thinking about the next step. They typically, especially for a startup, they're going to investigate and make use of that one year. And really they kind of, they paid for it, so to speak, with the filing of the provisional, they might as well take advantage of it. And so they'll go to trade shows, enter business plan competitions, try to make it, try to sell it, pitch it to potential buyers and, and we always recommend a patentability search. And so that should be done maybe six months, eight months into it at, a, at the latest, um, because it does take a month or two to do. And then a client usually want the, the inventor wants to think about whether they want to file the full case. You could do it two months before, but that gets tight because now it takes some time to do the search. And uh, if, if it looks like it's clear and you want to proceed, now you got to rush, rush to do to write this non-provisional patent document. Um, so that's generally the, the process. Um, and if any one of three or four, those three or four things don't get a thumbs up, if the prior art search shows that it's very, uh, it's not, there's not a lot of novelty and it's, it's obvious in view of the prior art, then don't file, don't waste the money on it. Um, if you can't sell it, there's no one interested, you go to the trade show and you have two people interested and that's it, then don't spend money on a patent application. Um, uh, or you, maybe you can't make it. Maybe it's just, I mean, I, I've had uh, inventors before say, well, we're going to have to have some very complex tooling in order to do what we invented. We're going to have to have this collapsible mold, collapsible tooling with three different shot molding and all. It's just going to be too expensive and we got to be at a, $50 price point, but it's going to be 200. It, and 
that's another reason why things might fail in you. So at least the provisional um, process gives you that foothold of a, patent, uh, a serial number and a filing date, and uh, you have some time to investigate it without losing your rights because when you file the full non-provisional, as your students know, you would connect it up with the provisional and you would be, you would, uh, the U.S. Patent Office as well as a foreign patent office, assuming it's you filed the provision before public disclosure, will honor the filing date. And it's because of this public disclosure you want to link it back. So that's generally the timing that we think about all the time. Uh, I have a question, yep. Dave. Regar regarding patent trolls, and I know there's an example here, right, on this podcast, there's a guy that said he had a, po a, a patent on a podcast yeah. uh, because they were distributing cassette tapes sometime in the 80s they got a patent on distributing audio on cassette tapes or something spoken word i have no idea i do know he spent a lot of time trying to pursue revenue from people who are producing podcasts anyway through this discovery period through this you know when you're when you when you're researching the patent do you also find areas that may be you may be vulnerable that someone's got a small piece of your patent that may you know of your process that may turn around to haunt you in the end they come after you and then you know your subject litigation because you've incorporated the small piece. Yeah. A lot of the, what we do, um, that is a concern and it should be uh, considered uh, when you're doing a patentability search. I mean, typically clients want to know, is my, um, uh, is, is my invention patentable? So that's their, their primary concern. When we, we do these prior art searches. A lot of, a lot of times we'll, the prior art that's found is um, uh, non-patent literature. Of course, there are, no, there are no patent issues with that. And also, some of the patents found could be very old. They could be 50 years old. There's no concern about those because they're they're dead. They would be dead by now. So um, there is that undercurrent or or background issue of uh, infringement and availability to make it. Um, that is a little different project that has to be done because now you're looking at the patent claims. You're looking at only patents that are um, active and in force. So the patent could be only six years old, but in the United States, but if they didn't pay the maintenance fee, it's dead. So there's a lot of extra, it's, it's a different kind of project if they're concerned about that, but it does, it is a, an important factor to look at availability. Um, there are also, uh, Another type of search that we do many of is, uh, is what we call a landscape search or a state-of-the-art search. So if someone's very early on in developing, uh, you can ask Aiden about this. He did this stuff all the time when a client says, we want to get into this space and they don't know about who's out there. What are the pitfalls? Who, who, who are the main players in the fill-in-the-blank technology? So you can do a landscape search and uh, – and get a little knowledge about who's out there, what are the what are people patenting, and then you can better understand what is available for you to um, invent and create as something that's unique to you. Um, of course, if you're already if you already invented something and you're already down that road, then that kind of search wouldn't be helpful. But many many clients are are interested in getting into an area and they know nothing about what's happening as far as IP. So. That's more of that's a that's a good tool to see what's out there first um, before you jump into an area. Mm -hmm. 
I want to bring this around to to I think one <laughs> what everyone that is getting patents on um, new inventions and their technologies is trying to do is ultimately you know make money or raise money. And I think it's important to stress in the med tech space, especially seeing a lot um, of investors through pitch events and a lot of startups um, in our realm working with investors is that that's one of the first things they're going to ask you when you're going to raise money. And that's one of the first things they don't, there's no reason that they're going to even listen to the rest of your pitch or go through your pitch deck if you do not have some type of defensibility or some type of IP. So I think it's really important. I think that's one of the reasons too, we brought this class to be one of the first classes in our, in our education program um, to really just stress that getting IP and being able to defend your technology um, is one of the key bits to being able to raise funds and creating relationships with investors. The venture capital folks and angel investors, they love the patents because it's a, it's a backstop for their investment. Mm-hmm. And so um, if they're, if, if an inventor or a company that's, um, that's getting into um, some new technology and they're looking for an investment help, um, the patents are oftentimes a, a critical kind of piece because now they can say, look, look at all this extra legal help that I have to, or, or legal protection that we have. Even if it's a provisional application, of course, provisionals aren't examined. There's, you have to then, you can, you have to file a non-provisional. There's so many things that have to go on after that, but at least you have a foothold with um, a, a filing date and a serial number. And that really helps, I think, a fair amount. Uh, I know we We've had some situations where we can file one or two provisionals, but rather than filing two really big provisionals on the whole product with a lot of different features, split them out into different features. Well, you have the such and such um, uh, imaging engine part, and then you have the, uh, oh, I don't know, the... uh, the, let's say it's a printer. Well, let's say an example of a copy machine. You have a you have the scanning part. You have the print engine. You have the paper handling. There's all these different features. So split it out. You're gonna have to split it out anyways when you file a full case. And so I think to do it to file one big giant jumbo provisional with all these different inventions in there is convoluted. Number one, and will be difficult or more difficult to kind of split out and kind of figure out what the inventions are when you file a full case later, or if you file a full case. But also, it'll be very uh, very coherent for um, a VC person to see. They have a provisional on the imaging, the the digital image capture. They have a a provisional on the the paper handling. They have another one on the sorting, and they they can see these discrete parts of of the product and they li- I think they like it generally, where there's there are, there are these different features, and they can see, well, okay, that one's important, but that one's not. So maybe when you get around to the one-year date to file the non-provisional, you just don't file on that one. And so um, I think it's – I've also I've had, I've had clients that talk about patents as trading cards. This is going to sound bad, but they call them trading cards because when you have more patents, that's better – and I, we don't mind it because it's work, but we, we're not going to file on things that don't have a shot. I mean, if they really want to file on something, they can't. But they're, they feel that when they get sued, if they get sued, that, oh, we've got five patents in this area and you have two patents. 
if you sue us, there's a decent chance that you're probably ripping us off and we can go after you. So you get into a cross-licensing scenario and it lessens the impact of getting sued. Um, so of course, you know, the big kind of like, imagine like Samsung and Apple fighting, which they were fighting on over <laughs> the, a lot of design elements of the phones and stuff like that. And, you know, Apple's, they, they have thousands of patents. And so right. um, it's, it's ammo, I guess, a lot of times. And that's another reason why the um, venture capital investors like it, because it's a way that they can protect themselves, not only offensively, but defensively, too. I, IBM is one of the biggest holders of patents, aren't they? They, they? they utilize that strategy a lot. IBM, I believe, is still, year, year after year, um, is still, I have to check who was the, the biggest last year, but they get something like, Four, three or 4,000 patents a year, and of which they, I think, I read a stat that I think it's something small, 15% they actually use, implement in their own products. So they have this whole licensing. So they're monetizing their, their, their engineers. So they're inventing all this stuff rather than just put it in a closet, like, like in the, the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, just push it, you know, put it into this big <laughs> warehouse and they don't see it again. They're going to they're gonna say, oh, this is good stuff. Let's maybe another company can use it. That's not going to really hurt us too much. And we'll make a few. It's like a bit. I think it's in the billions for them in the licensing fees. IBM wow. because they're so active with the patents. Wow. Interesting. Um, one more topic I want to bring up before we we close this episode out is so we work with a lot of foreign companies and currently we we really work with bringing helping foreign companies bring their products to the U.S. Um, and I think we've we've talked prior and obviously we this whole episode we've been talking really about domestic filing um, when those companies come over and let's say they have patents in for example like Korea um, and they've been selling their product they're obviously probably going to have to apply for a patent here. What does that look like for, for companies coming to the U.S. that have kind of IP elsewhere? Do they have to go through the same process as companies really coming up with a new idea here? Yeah. So the similar issues come up as far as, so they filed their own home country application. If they want to come into the, they want to file in the U.S., they have to do it in a timely fashion as well. So if they have a Korean granted patent issue, they're not going to be able to file in the U.S. because they can't. It's already it's too late. They they can't link it up to the patent in Korea. Mm-hmm. But if they have a, a, a an application pending in Korea that's less than a year that was filed less than a year ago, then they can link it up. And there are all sorts of we could talk about the foreign patent rules for five hours, but suffice to say that you have similar rules going from a U.S. provisional to a non-provisional or U.S. provisional to a Canadian application or a U.S. non-provisional, if that's your first filing to a Korean application. You have you have the same kind of issues inbound into the U.S. And there are a couple of different ways that you link it up. One is the, the old Paris Convention, which says within a year you can file in the U.S., and if you're a signatory to that treaty from 1946 or whatever, you can file in the U.S. and the U.S. examiner, the USPTO, will have to honor the filing date in Korea. And it's all about priority. So if you have a filing date that is that goes back in time nine months because you filed in Korea nine months ago, now the examiner is going to have to beat 
the Korean filing date for prior art. So it's all about prior art. Um, and also another important thing to note is um, the U.S., since the American Events Act a couple of years back, um, we are now a, um, a first-to-file country. It used to be first-to-event. So first-to-file is if you file a provisional nice and early and you then link it up later with a non-provisional, you'll get your filing date is going back to that provisional date. And it's, it's important because if so, it used to be we used to fight over who conceived of first, all these interference proceedings at the patent office. I remember when I was an examiner before we allowed a case, we'd have to, we did an interference search, which is basically seeing if someone filed after the application that you're handling, but they got a, it's allowed before you're about to allow it. It just gets really strange. So you want to make sure you don't, the, the office has to make sure that they're not double issuing or issuing more than one patent on the same invention. It's, I think it's harder for them to do that now because you have dates of, you have a filing date. And so, um, but coming in from the foreign countries, they have to think about, they have to have some foresight as well. Mm. And if they have something pending 13 months to come into the United States, is that's going to be, you know, that's going to be difficult or not possible to do. So uh, there are some ways to petition to restore your right of priority and extend. other some countries going in like China, you can extend it two months for a fee, um, but that all that invites scrutiny and litigation, all this, all that stuff, and you want to you don't want to have to deal with all that. Um, so there's another thing called the Patent Cooperation Treaty, um, which a lot of our foreign um, we we uh, we work with a lot of firms around the world, and they'll say our client filed uh, an application 11 months ago. We just, I just got one two days ago, um, and it's due July 15th, and that's a one-year due date under the Paris Convention. Some of them say we filed a, a patent cooperation treaty application um, 30 months ago, and you get 30 months from the first filing date to file in the United States. Um, European Patent Office, you get 31 months, and different countries have different um, different dates. So you can extend it. So the moral of the story is that if you file, if you're not sure, a patent cooperation treaty application is nice because you can you pay a little, you pay instead of filing directly in the United States and having to translate into English and all the costs of a lawyer over there, you can file a PCT application and um, you'll extend your decision um, 18 months. Instead of 12 months, it'll be 30, mm-hmm. uh, which is sometimes it's, I don't know how people make a decision on all this stuff in only 12 months. Yeah. They're just getting off the ground. Yeah. So you have to guess a little bit and you think, well, 12 months or I'm only going to file, I'm going to file in Canada and Japan, that's it. And then you don't file a PCT. And then two years later, you say, oh, we, we just got a rep in uh, someone in Europe in uh, in France is really interested. Can we get a patent now in France? And you can't, so because um, it's too late. But if you file the patent cooperation treaty application, we have to have the knowledge that they exist and um, and that how they work. That they give you they give you some extra time. So mm-hmm. I think I think in a globalized world, and I hate to use 
I hate to use the term here, I hate to use a war term analogy, wartime analogy, but it sounds like patents are a minefield. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for your, your insight. It's been, it's been really, um, it's been really helpful to me. Uh, and I hope it's helpful to all, all the people looking at Nemec right, yeah, these days. Exactly. <clears throat> well, thank you, Dave. And what would be, if anyone wanted to get in contact with you um, and work with you, what would be the best way to contact you? Yeah, uh, people can shoot me an email or give me a call. Um, I suppose uh, when you post this, uh, maybe you can, you'll just put my contact information in there. Yeah. But also yeah. David Joseph, or Barlow right. Josephs and Holmes um, will come up um, in Google mm -hmm. if you if you searched it. Yeah. Um, Perfect. And I just want to add, so we have a program running right now called our Activate program. And um, what it is, is we're able to pretty much give startups that are based in Rhode Island. And if you're not um, and you're interested in this program, please reach out to me. There is a way that you can register your business to do business in Rhode Island and you can still access this program um, for free. And what we will do is give you um, either between $5,000 and $20,000 if you are accepted into the program to be able to hire people like Dave Josephs to work on to work on IP or we can hire any type of third party um, consultant to work on any type of your business um, to really get you to be an investable company. And this was born out of, we saw so many startups going to investors. They usually had kind of one part piece of their business that they needed to build up. But what was happening is they needed the funds that they were trying to raise to build up that, that part. And they were kind of stuck in what we call the Valley of death of they couldn't get, they couldn't get the funds to do the thing, but they couldn't get the thing to do the fun to get the funds. Um, so it's very, interesting so that the program was born out of that we're able to really give Rhode Island startups free money and you can work with someone like Dave on IP or you can work with any type of other consultant on clinical trials um, marketing and even raising funds and things like that so thank you very much and um, we hope you enjoy our episode and we will be back um, in two weeks hey guys talk to you soon then. thank hey. you Dave yeah, thank bye -bye. you Dave <laughs>